You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Last week, the BMJ and NICE International held a global health conference. One of the issues discussed was the relationship between donor agencies and recipient countries and how vertical health programs should lead to systemic improvements. So therefore, if the vertical staff can be trained in doing other things apart from their major and core business, I believe that that way we'll be using one stone to hit two best. We'll also hear from the director of NICE International about their work. But before that, a paper published online this week on bmj.com looks at projected effects of tobacco smoking on worldwide tuberculosis control. I'm joined on the phone by one of the authors, Stanton Glantz, who's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thank you for your interest. So this paper is looking at uh, the worldwide effect of uh, tobacco smoking um, on tuberculosis control. But you say at the beginning that there's uh, quite good data about increased individual risk, um, which has led to this. So could you set that out for us? How does smoking affect um, tuberculosis infection and mortality in an individual? Smoking increases the susceptibility of individuals to getting the infection and shortens the time between latent and active tuberculosis and the time between active tuberculosis and death because smoking depresses the immune system and also depresses the function of macrophages. And the overall effect is that uh, risk of latent tuberculosis is about doubled if you are a smoker. The, uh, the risk of going from latent to active tuberculosis is also about doubled. And the risk of death once the tuberculosis is active is increased by about a factor of 2.6. So it's a substantial, smoking has a substantial effect on the on the the chain of events involved in acquiring and dying from tuberculosis. Mm, absolutely. And the standard epidemiological models that have been used to analyze and project the global tuberculosis epidemic haven't accounted for smoking. And all we did in this paper was simply take the generally accepted uh, epidemiology models for tuberculosis and add in these effects of smoking to that model and then project out what we would expect to happen in the future uh, in pretty much the same way as had been done uh, before. Okay. As you say, there are other things that will, will modify risk of dying from tuberculosis or going from latent to, to active, things like HIV, things like drug resistant. Yes. Were those included in that model or or is that something that's that's still separate? No, we, we included those we in two ways. Uh, H, we we included the mo- we included the effects of HIV in the model. Uh, again, that's a pretty standard thing to do in uh, TB modeling because there's a well-established interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, the effects of smoking were, were ended up being larger than the effects of HIV, but we do have HIV in there. And then we include in the model uh, the, treat, the detection and treatment rates 
and um, uh, the proportion of patients that are successfully treated. And those are all, those estimates all include uh, the, the other things you were talking about as yeah. parameters in the model. I mean, obviously, there's uncertainty in all of this because we're doing a projection, but the effects of, of putting smoking into the model were quite large. Okay. So I think they're well beyond any of the uncertainty in the parameter estimates in the model. Now, when you were building this model, you used uh, sort of three scenarios. One's that the rates decrease from particularly stringent uh, tobacco control, one where the status quo is maintained, and one where rates of smoking go up. Once you, you looked at that with those three scenarios, what came out of your model? Okay, what we found is that between 2010 and 2050, which is the period we projected, smoking would produce an extra 18 million tuberculosis cases and 40 million deaths for tuberculosis under if the status quo were to continue. Uh, the effect of smoking uh, would, would, was increasing the number of tuberculosis cases by about 7% and the deaths by 66%. Uh, that is about 101 versus 61 million deaths mm. compared to predictions that didn't account for the smoking. So putting smoking into the model uh, makes a big difference. Uh, the smoking, as I said earlier, would delay the development, the reaching the Millennium Development Goals quite substantially. If we had an aggressive tobacco control program that would get a 1% decrease in smoking prevalence a year, which is possible. Uh, that's something we've achieved here in California with a quite aggressive program. Yeah. That would avert about 27 million smoking-attributable deaths that were due to tuberculosis between now and 2050. On the other hand, if the tobacco companies succeed in increasing smoking uh, by 50% uh, among adults in the countries, uh, which would bring the developing countries up to the levels of tobacco use at the peak levels in, in countries like Europe and the United States, yeah. the model estimated that there'd be about 34 million additional deaths from TB between now and 2050. So that's so the 40 the, million in the, in the standard model plus an extra 34 million through an increase in, in the smoking yeah. rate. So a total yes. of 74 million yeah. excess deaths from tuberculosis in 40 years it's a yeah that's correct it's a it's an astounding number when you when we you look at it like that the bottom line of the paper is that for many years people have seen a dichotomy between control of infectious diseases and dealing with things like tobacco and the uh, which are were viewed as uh, dealing with non-communicable diseases like cancer and heart disease. Mm. And what this is showing is that that's a false dichotomy, that uh, uh, smoke tobacco control is, in fact, tuberculosis control, and that you can't control tuberculosis and come anywhere near meeting what the currently established goals are unless you uh, also deal with tobacco. And hopefully your work here will help uh, strengthen the case. Um just underlines the fact that the tobacco industry is permissible to um, yeah. public health. What, the, what our paper is showing is that if you are serious about trying to meet the Millennium Development Goals, you have to deal with tobacco. One of the ways that the tobacco companies go into developing countries and argue against good tobacco control policies, and one of the ways 
that the tobacco companies are working to try to undermine the national implementation of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control uh, is to simply say to countries, well, you know, you're in poverty. If you want to get out of poverty, you need you shouldn't be worrying about this silly anti-tobacco stuff. You know, we can create jobs. We can create exports for you. And this is showing that, that in fact, the price for that is, is more infectious disease, more tuberculosis, more health costs uh, borne both by people as individuals and by governments and, and the society as a whole. Uh, so it, th- this paper, if we're lucky, will really help to bridge uh, between the, not only the infectious and non-infectious disease, but the people who are concerned about development and human rights and to see that they really have to take tobacco control seriously if they're serious about meeting their goals. Absolutely. Professor Glantz, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for having me. And that research paper is freely available online on bmj.com. Now, at the Global Health Conference last week, I was joined in the studio by David Heyman, Chairman of the HPA and former WHO Director General for Polio Eradication. Also joining us was Martha Gyantza Lederot, Director of Pharmaceutical Services in the Ghanaian Ministry of Health. We picked up from David's talk on the success and failures of vertical health programs. Well, there are a great many arguments about programs either because they're vertical or horizontal, because they're dealing with one disease or not dealing with many diseases. But in the end, what we need to do is make sure that every program, whether it's one disease or many diseases are strengthening the health system because they usually work within the health system. So it's, if it's a program like eradication of polio, for example, there are many epidemiologists trained throughout the world in polio epidemiology, and there are many laboratories working with polio. There's no reason that they can't assume other responsibilities within a government so that they broaden their skills and become multi subject workers within that country. So vertical and horizontal are arguments which really, in my opinion, don't carry any water. The argument is use whatever you can get to broaden your capacities within the health system. You made the point um, during David's talk uh, about this. How easy is it to to do that practically? I mean, it's a a good vision, but um, obviously there are barriers to implementation. Yeah. Um, like I said yesterday, it's, it's very important for us to realize that a lot of the vertical programs occur within health systems. And those health systems, if they are weak, they cannot support such a program. A health system that cannot support with transport, a health system that cannot support with information management, a health system that cannot provide effective management of ARVs, And that health system, because it cannot support it, then you may put in so much, but it's like a black box. Nothing really comes out of it. And that is why I believe in sector-wide approach to managing these vertical programs. I believe that what David said uh, regarding a multi-purpose staff Mm. is very relevant here because we do not have the numbers, and yet the issues are many. So therefore, if the vertical staff can be trained in doing other things apart from their major and core business, I believe that that way we'll be using one stone to hit two best. Mm. 
Mm. And you mentioned uh, the polio uh, labs as an example of this. How did they manage to to do that? Um, it's, it's a vertical program that funds this, but where did the will come from? Where, where did the the action come to to be able to spread their their work out? I think the will to spread the work out of the vertical or so-called vertical programs, the responsibility in the will lies within the host government and also within the donor community. And governments must be in a position to say, we want your money, but we want it spread out over these activities rather than we want your money, period. Getting governments really involved in it. And, and governments are involved. They really are involved. And what's important is that the donor community or the development agencies understand that governments must be in charge of their countries. And therefore, if they're proposing something which isn't accepted, they should be told that by the country. For example, any donor agency that recommends not using condoms for AIDS and a country, in a country which recommends that as their strategy should be conforming to the country's strategy rather than the donor's strategy. Mm, and I suppose conversely, donor agencies should be more tough about saying to governments, you know, you have to take uh, charge of this as well. That's correct. And, and many times that's difficult to do for the the donor agencies or the development agencies if they've targeted the work that they want done. Mm. And uh, that is why, for instance, the country where I come from, Ghana, we have a platform where we meet as Ministry of Health and Development Partners. We take decisions as to what should happen. The ministry brings their plans and the donor community interrogate those plans. And at the end, we both must win. Mm. And that is the way to go. This kind of brings us on to your second point um, that you made, which is uh, talking about meningitis vaccine in particular. Mm. Mm. Um, the Gates Foundation now provided for, what, 47? The vaccine is being provided by a private company in India at 47 cents a dose, and the market is both to Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunizations, and also to countries. Um, but the initial strategy has been one where Gavi has committed to purchasing a certain number of doses of vaccine from the manufacturer, and these will be given, as far as I understand, to countries at no cost for what we call mopping up, making sure that all the population under 20 years of age has, has vaccine. Mm. But in saying that, some of the countries in the meningitis belt where meningitis occurs could be showing leadership, could be showing help to their neighbors by stepping up and saying, we can afford that vaccine at 47 cents a dose. We will buy it for our country. We would like Gavi to spend more money on the countries that can't afford it. But that hasn't happened. And Gavi does have its, um, you know, what they call that graduating nations, where they they pay a different proportion depending mm -hmm. on their GDP. Mm -hmm. that, that model of getting people to yeah. pay for their stuff. Is that something that, that yeah, okay. all donor agencies need to look at? I think Gavi has the right idea. I, I'm not, I can't speak for Gavi, but I think that Gavi, in, in requiring some contribution for member countries, is, is going in the right direction because the last thing that we want to see done is initiative destroyed in countries and national engagement destroyed in getting funding for health by giving 
the resources to the country directly. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we all agree that uh, vaccines has changed the health of nations uh, tremendously. I know for sure Ghana, for instance, will be launching the meningitis uh, and other vaccines next year. And uh, what I also know is that there is a matching fund from Gavi. I know for sure that um, you'll be able to come to a point where you virtually will pay for your vaccines. But we in Ghana have not reached there yet. But there is some percentages that we do pay. I also agree that uh, countries must put money into health because if you are healthy, you are likely to be wealthy. Mm. We are poor because our health indices are poor. And therefore, it is very important that countries put money into health. That was David Heyman and Martha Gyantel-Ludderot talking from the Global Health Conference last week. Another figure from the conference was Calypso Chalkadu, director of NICE International. She's here now to tell us a little bit more about how they work. So thanks for joining us, Calypso. Thank you for the invitation. Um, lots of people know what NICE do in the NHS, setting guidelines, doing uh, economic evaluation of drugs and things, um, but probably less so what NICE International do. So are you there just to kind of pass on that, that clinical information to other countries, or what? how do you work? Right, well, we... Um just to give you a bit of background, we were set up by NICE's board about three years ago, and uh, this was in uh, response to a growing interest from, from countries who were um, increasingly faced with problems similar to what we're faced with here in, in the UK. Mm. So NICE International was set up, and there's now five of us. We're part of NICE. And the, the way we work is very much reactive. So we respond to requests for um, help, and in some cases, it's, as you said, just passing on information, helping people understand what we do or what our approach or recommendations are in specific clinical areas. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of the time it's about more hands-on support, uh, which involves, for example, uh, working with clinical colleagues in these other countries or um, managers to look at specific problems or, as I said earlier, look at um, uh, trying to address a, a more sort of permanent need for assessing evidence and turning the evidence into policies that can be uh, uh, acted on. Sure. I mean, as other countries have uh, nice like institutions, ICWIG in Germany, Pharmac in New Zealand. Um, so which countries are you working with? Are they, they are the ones with, with health systems comparable to ours or more developing countries? or? Well, we're both, and it's sort of it's not uh, um, unidirectional in a sense. So, for example, we're working with colleagues uh, in, in countries like Australia, who have got a very well developed system. And in fact, uh, Nice was when it was set up, looked at the Australian model and uh, and and sort of uh, borrowed a lot of its components uh, at the early days. Um, but we're also working with colleagues in countries like, for example, Colombia or. China, where uh, there aren't such systems yet, but uh, the governments in those countries and the payers uh, are, are feel that there ought to be. So they're in the process of, of developing this. So it's about building partnerships and uh, trying to learn from each other and also uh, well, hopefully pass on some of our experience and understanding out to people who um, have those specific questions. One of the sessions at this conference, we had um, sort of case studies from, from China, from Turkey, uh, yeah. about um, 
about your work. So I was wondering if you could maybe choose choose one place that NICE has been working internationally and just sort of set out for our listeners what it is you did there. Sure, yeah. So uh, if I were to pick a large example, China. Uh, we've been working with our Chinese colleagues in the Ministry of Health um, uh, for about two, two and a half years now. Um, and the Department for International Development have been uh, kindly supporting this work. And uh, what we've, we've been asked to do there is look at high-priority diseases and conditions uh, ranked by burden, and our Chinese colleagues offered the data and the rankings, uh, concentrating rural, uh, rural China. And, and then we worked with clinicians from uh, the provinces, western provinces, most poorer provinces, and clinicians from um, Beijing, the large urban hospitals, and clinicians from the UK, and also with administrators and economists and epidemiologists, mostly Chinese, with some input from us, to go through the pathways of care in these disease areas and try to uh, identify things that we would do differently. So things like IV antibiotics or um, uh, the use of IV fluids. Um, And then we, we sort of worked together with them to look at the international evidence, the guidance that we have here in this country and other countries, and have a conversation about how these pathways could change. So it was a mix of of politics and economics and an evidence-informed practice. Everything that NICE is, is known to do, absolutely. <laughs> um, how did those projects go? Well, the Chinese one, I think, has has been going well so far. I think it's triggered even more interest because people could see now the tangible results, potential savings if you were to scale it up. And the Chinese now are, are openly discussing the establishment of a, a China nice, if you like. That's mm-hmm. what they call it, not, not me. They also call it nicer. <laughs> One of the interviews we've done was with David uh, Heyman and uh, a representative from the Ministry of Health in Ghana talking about how vertical programs have come in and there's problems getting the funding to move out through the health system to build capacity and things. One of the points made was that developing health systems quite often don't have good data management. They don't have the ability to, to collect the kind of information that your Chinese colleagues were able to give you to, to help you build this evaluation. So how do you work in a situation like that? That's a very good point, actually. I'm not sure I have the answer. And certainly data are extremely important and very limited in, in, in many cases, including in the UK. So a lot of the work we do, in fact, that uh, nice a lot of the time has to rely on well, international uh, evidence and um, estimates uh, and assumptions when it comes, for instance, to even to costs or uptake. Or, so, you know, even well-developed systems like ours have problems collecting data. So, of course, in, in settings like in sub-Saharan Africa or, or in rural China as well, data are, are problematic. Uh, I think decisions are made. Uh, whether data are there or not. Mm. Uh, and even when data are there, a lot of the time decisions are made without consulting the data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could wait until the perfect data is available um, or we could try and establish mechanisms for um, making decisions in a way that to an extent will help us identify the most appropriate data and then generate it because generating data uh, is in itself a costly and resource-intensive mm. exercise. So um, what I'm trying to say is that when you have a me- means of articulating significant policy questions or practice questions, um, then these questions can drive the generation of, of evidence. And we've seen this happen, I think, in, in the UK and other countries. So um, acknowledging that there's lack of evidence or lack of data 
um, but 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 still a decision making process is followed mm. um, is better than making these decisions without in, in, a, in a more implicit fashion. Yeah, and you work with lots of different countries where potentially there are similar problems, similar setups, similar ability to resource um, things. So uh, do you help those countries kind of learn from each other? We are certainly learning from many other countries, uh, things that we never realised people were doing, very resourceful and uh, and very effective at times. And we certainly would love to, and and I, I hope we've achieved to an extent, to, to bring people together, but also through the projects we run, we approach things in a very collaborative fashion. So uh, we we're trying to put people in touch with each other and use resources of um, uh, in, in in other countries um, to 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 try and facilitate this, as you said, the sort of sharing the ex- experiences that may be a lot more relevant than uh, the NHS experience when it comes to a setting like uh, I don't know uh, southeastern Turkey. Mm. Great. Well, Kopso, uh, thank you very much for thank talking you. to us. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be finding out about non-responding lower respiratory tract infections. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.